few months ago, a blog appeared on Christianity Today, and it asked this, how many pastors know their people well today? How much of themselves are pastors willing to reveal to their congregants? A megachurch pastor might have 50,000 anonymous souls downloading their sermons each week, but do they know any of them by name? Many people are being fed weekly, but are they truly known by a caring shepherd? This critique is important and true. You know, a lot of people today interact with the church by attending in person or watching online, and they'll listen to some music. Maybe they'll sing along. Maybe they'll listen to a sermon, and then when the service is over, they say, well, that's it till next week. Many believers in big and small churches think that what God wants us to do is to be involved at church only so that we can listen to Christian content. But what this approach does is it reduces the church down to me and various talking heads that I listen to. There's no sense of community, no need for anyone in the chairs alongside of you. And if that's our understanding of the church, then we're going to have a really hard time making sense of verses like these. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. See, the New Testament expects the local church is not just going to be a content provider on Sunday morning, but it's to be a community of people who live alongside each other. Yes, friends, the teaching of this church is an important part of your spiritual life, but God doesn't only intend you to grow by listening to the teaching of this church. It's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. He intends you to grow as part of a community with friends who are encouraging and serving you as you encourage and serve them. And when I say friends, I don't just mean me and the other elders. No, in the end, Jesus knows that we need more than a sermon. We need more than church leaders. Jesus knows that we need each other. And that's why Jesus has given us a community. And that's why he has given Christians in every age the local church. And so today, as we continue our study in the books of 1 Timothy and Titus, we're again going to discuss the community of the local church. Two weeks ago, we talked about the community's obligation to help those in need. Last week, we saw how the community should relate to its leaders. And now today, we're going to see how the leaders should relate to the community. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. But actually, today's passages offer some of the most practical instruction in the entire New Testament, in which we see that God has something to say to every one of us about where we are in this stage in life in which we presently occupy and how we ought to be growing. And we're going to see that today as we look at three closely related passages. Today we're primarily going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but we're also going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And as we put these passages together, we're going to see two points. First, we're going to see how church leaders must conduct themselves before the church, and second, we're going to see how church leaders are to interact with different parts of the church's community. So let's start with our first point, which is how should church leaders conduct themselves before the church? The blog I read you a minute ago describes a common trend within the American church, which is that church leaders are often content to remain personally distant 
from their congregations. And there are a variety of reasons for this. But whatever those reasons may be, the truth is, that's not what God intends. One of the best books I've read on eldership says this, shepherds smell like sheep. And the idea is church leaders should be around their congregants. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 2. You've got a Bible turned there. And here what we see is Paul is speaking to Titus, who's a young church leader, and he's working on the island of Crete. And Paul tells Titus, here's how you need to lead. And he starts in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Church leadership is deeply and profoundly connected to the handling of God's Word. We've said before the authority of the church's elders is a teaching authority. We lead validly only when we lead in line with the Bible, and we lead effectively only when we point you guys to the truths that are found in the Bible. And the first thing Paul wants Titus to do, and the first thing every church leader has to do, is to be able to teach. And what is Titus to teach? Well, notice that verse 1 begins with the word but. There's a contrast here with, with what Titus is to do and that which came before, which is described in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Paul talks about many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we've got false teachers in Crete. And Paul doesn't want Titus teaching what the heretics are teaching. Titus has to teach what's true. He is to teach sound doctrine. The gospel of the true humanity, the true deity, the sinless perfection, the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Titus has to teach this. And he has to teach what accords with it. He's to teach not just the gospel, but how we live in line with it. It's a huge part of the book of Titus. Back in chapter 1, Paul says the truth accords with godliness. The gospel's true and it should cause us to live lives of good works. More than that, Paul says to Titus, drop down to verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Notice, Paul keeps talking about teaching. Teaching is important. And Titus isn't just to teach what's true. He's to teach with integrity. The Greek word here is the negated form of the word corruption. So Titus isn't to be corrupt or hypocritical. He's to be dignified. This word is one of the qualifications of eldership. It basically means seriousness. Now, this doesn't mean that every church leader has to go around being dour and grumpy all the time. There is a time for fun, but there's also a time for seriousness. And when we're teaching or administering the church, that's serious business. There is an eternal import to that. Titus has to be serious, and he's got to use sound words. He's not to pull any punches. He's to say what's true. So Titus must teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But that's not the end of his responsibilities as a leader. He is not only to appear on Sunday mornings, show himself alive in the pulpit for 30 minutes, and disappear again for a week. No, Titus must live a life marked by good works. Well, what kind of works? Well, we saw what kind of works church leaders should emphasize a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy 4. 
For Timothy was told, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So in attitude, word, and deed, Timothy must reflect Christ and Christ's lordship. He is to set a personal example of godliness in his life. And notice he is to do this before the church. Paul says he is to show himself. Show himself to who? To the church, to the members who are watching him. There is no sense of vast pastoral distance here. No, Titus is to be around the flock enough that they know him, they see his life, and they see and benefit by his example. Titus is to lead both in the pulpit and among the church, knowing that the church is watching his example and that the world is too. So Titus has to be careful because there are opponents who are hoping he will falter. They can't wait to denounce Christianity and they want Titus to give them an occasion to malign Christ and his truth. But Paul says, as Titus lives and teaches in a godly way, he will shut the mouths of those adversaries and his godly conduct will expose and shame his adversaries, which is what they deserve. All right, now what should we take from all of this? I know we've looked at a number of passages like this in recent weeks. Let me just say one more time to myself, to the elders, and to the deacons, that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, we must keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. We must do this privately, and we must do it before the church. We've got to be open to talking about doctrinal matters with our fellow congregants, and they need to be able to see our lives. Because we are not simply content providers, we are to lead by publicly giving the church both sound teaching and a godly personal example. But now we come to our second point. And here we see how the church's leaders are to interact with different parts of the church's community. Timothy and Titus are not just to set examples and teach from afar. They are to directly engage with the people that they serve. And now Paul tells us what this looks like. How should leaders treat church members? The sorts of things that the leaders should encourage church members in. That's what we're going to look at now. Now what's interesting is that in the instructions we're going to look at, Paul is very aware of the idea that there is great diversity within the church's community. Now, when we think about diversity, usually we think about ethnic diversity, but that is not Paul's focus here. Instead, Paul's going to emphasize the fact that the church is comprised of both men and women. Gender is not a social construct. It is a biological reality. Man and woman are real and meaningful categories designed by God. Men and women are both equally made in God's image. They are equal in intrinsic value, and yet they are different. And in the verses that follow, Paul urges church leaders to treat men and women in the church a bit differently and to encourage them differently. Additionally, Paul emphasizes the fact that the church is comprised of both older and younger people. This is an important truth that has been forgotten today. In many ways, American Christianity is obsessed with youth. A few years ago, there was a great book written called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And this book says that American Christianity now holds that the beliefs and practices of adolescence should become accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. And this book showed that 
churches that underwent this transformation of becoming all about the youth, they sacrificed everything thinking, oh, we'll keep young people around. In fact, they had catastrophic impacts in their doctrine and other practices. Friends, this youth-centered movement has been a terrible thing for the American church. We have wound up with shallow churches. We have wound up with churches that don't care about theology and the Bible anymore. We've wound up with churches that sing songs devoid of meaningful content and many other evils. And ironically, this juvenile Christianity light didn't wind up attracting any young people either. But friends, our fanatical obsession with acting young and appealing to the young is not God's will for us. Because friends, we are not all teenagers, no matter how much we would like to think that we still are. That mindset is carnality and worldliness. Our years of youth are not the glory years that we should try to scratch and claw to hold on to. Our years of youth are usually the years of folly. Old age is not something to be resisted. It is a reality that brings some advantages, wisdom, and experience. Proverbs 16 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. So it's okay for us to act our age. And Paul says it's important that we do. And it's important that the church recognizes the worth of both its older and younger members. And in the following verses, Paul tells church leaders to treat older and younger believers in a bit different way. We're also going to see in these passages that Paul speaks about some socioeconomic issues in the church. And using all of these criteria, what Paul does is he divides the local church into five groups. Everybody in the ancient church would fit somewhere into at least one of these five groups, and pretty much everybody in the modern church does too. And Paul talks about all five of these groups in both 1 Timothy and Titus. So we're going to jump back and forth between these books. And we're going to see what Paul has to say about each of these groups. Church leaders, listen up, because the rest of these verses tell us how God wants us to interact with every person in the rest of this congregation. And believers who are not leaders in this church, you need to listen up too, because these verses tell us exactly what God wants each of us to focus on, depending on our age and gender. So let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now let's begin with the first group that Paul identifies in verse 1. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Paul starts by talking about older men. Now this is the same Greek word Paul uses elsewhere to describe the elders of the church, that is the church's leaders. And so some people have tried to say this verse is only about the elders. But that is extremely unlikely. Because in verses 1 and 2, he speaks not just about older men, but also older women and younger men and younger women. So Paul's not singling out church leaders here as opposed to church members. No, he's talking about older men as opposed to other demographic groups. Now, who are these older men? In verses 9 and 11 of this chapter, Paul creates a distinction between younger widows and widows who have attained the age of 60. So my guess is he has a similar framework in mind here. Now, if you're approaching or past 60, you might not like to think of yourself as being older. But remember that in Paul's day, life expectancy was a lot shorter. So being 60 would seem a lot older back then than it does today. And besides that, didn't we just say that there is something to be said for maturity and not clutching on to whatever we, youth we think we still have? Friends, there's nothing wrong with admitting our age and being thankful to be where we are in life. So Paul here speaks to older men. 
And Paul tells Timothy when he interacts with older men, he is to treat them as he would treat his own father, especially when he is to correct or encourage an older man. Timothy is not to just default to rebuking. Now, I want to state that this prohibition on rebuke is not absolute. Later in this chapter, we learn that if an older man serves as an elder and is guilty of sin, that it disqualifies him. Paul commands in verse 20, rebuke him in the presence of all. Rebuking older men is sometimes appropriate and necessary. Similarly, in Titus 1, Paul is speaking about church members who are seduced by heresy. And he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke is appropriate in that situation too. But ordinarily, when Timothy interacts with older men in his church, if he's to encourage or admonish them, he's to do it gently, as he would do to his own father if his father was in error. The Scripture tells us to honor our parents, and likewise, church leaders should treat older men in an honored way. Now, what sorts of things should we encourage older men to pursue? Leisure, retirement, Crankiness, that seems to be what our society thinks about old men, right? Well, let's see what God says. Look over at Titus chapter 2, verse 2. He says, older men are to be, and then there's a list of characteristics. First is sober-minded. This is one of the qualifications of eldership. Sometimes this word means not being drunk, but usually it means being able to distinguish between which issues are important and which are a waste of time. Being able to engage with these things in a clear-thinking way. Next, he says dignified. We just talked about this word. It means being serious about serious matters. Then he says self-controlled. We're going to encounter this one again and again. This is also one of the elder qualifications. And this word speaks of having a mastery over yourself, not being controlled by emotional impulses or physical appetites. Then he says sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Older men need to be healthy in faith. They need to be able to trust God no matter what comes. And in love, in desiring to benefit others. And in steadfastness, having a patient endurance that has been born out of weathering trials and hardships, that is able to withstand because you have a living hope in Christ. Older men here today, how are you doing with these things? Let me encourage you, don't retreat inwardly, as so many older men do. You have much to offer others. Your knowledge and experience get more involved with people, not less. Care about them enough to invest yourself in them. At this point in life, you have been tested many times. Surely you have found God to be faithful. Trust Him and encourage others to trust Him. Don't give way to grumbling and bitterness and the other sins that so easily beset older men. But be marked by patient endurance because your faith will soon be sight. And encourage others to persevere too. Don't say, I've served my time, now I get to self-indulge. Don't waste your remaining years on transitory nonsense and foolish controversies. I have seen older men be very easily led into all manner of obsession about political nonsense or theological minutia. Friends, resist this. Invest yourself in what really matters. Practice the discernment that you surely have forged over the years and remain clear-headed and serious about the most important things. You'll notice many of these characteristics are the qualifications for the eldership. That's not accidental. 
Don't be content to coast away from responsibility as you age. That's worldliness. Now is when your service is needed for the people of God. Invest yourself and redouble your efforts in Christ's kingdom. We come now to the second group Paul discusses, which is older women. Back in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, Encourage older women as mothers. Church leaders are to love and honor the older women in our church as we love and honor our own mothers. We saw two weeks ago that part of this duty involves ensuring that older women who are widowed without financial support are able to receive a living from the church. We're to care for such women as dutiful sons. But we're also to encourage them to also pursue godliness. And Paul tells us what that looks like in Titus 2 verse 3. He says, older women likewise are to be. And again, we find a list of characteristics. Verse 3, he says, reverent in behavior. This word basically means to serve as a priest. The idea is this, your deeds and thoughts are to be living sacrifices to God. He says, don't be slanderers. Paul knows that older women can easily succumb to being a busybody or a gossip. And from there, it doesn't take much to go on being a slanderer and lying about people. Older ladies don't use your speech like that. Verse 3, Paul says, are not slaves to much wine. Paul doesn't want older ladies to idle away their remaining years in drunkenness. He says in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul wants older ladies to cultivate these characteristics. And more than that, he calls older ladies to service. And he does that here both implicitly and explicitly. We find it implicitly when we compare this verse to 1 Timothy 3.11, which we've previously said are the qualifications for the office of deaconess. There, Paul says, women must be dignified, not slanderers, and sober-minded. The parallels are basically exact. So just as older men should strive to meet the qualifications of elder and deacon, older ladies aspire to meet the qualifications of deaconess. The church would benefit from your committed service and from formally recognizing that service. But Paul also asks older ladies to perform another function in the church. Look at verse 3. He says, They're to teach what's good and so train the young women. We're going to talk about young women in a minute, but let me point out a few things here. First, women's ministry is biblical. Yes, 1 Timothy 2 says women may not be elders or wield teaching authority over men. But there's nothing wrong and there's everything right with women teaching other women in the church. Second, this verse is doing more than just describing an organized women's teaching ministry. Uh, Because the things that Paul's going to urge older women to teach younger women here are not theology and Bible study. Now, listen carefully. I'm not saying that women shouldn't be taught Bible and theology. Women need to be taught Bible and theology. One of the principal reasons the American church is in the mess it's in is because the stuff that is marketed to women's ministry is overly sentimentalized and theologically nonsensical schlock, very often. Women are being misled. Women need robust training and theology and the Bible, and they should expect that from their church. We need a robust women's Bible study, and by God's grace, we have that here. If you're a lady, we would like you to be at it with regularity. It will do you good. It will do your family good. It will do this church good. Yes, women need instruction in theology and the Bible. But that instruction does not have to come from older women. 
I know a church that was trying to hire a pastor, and they brought a man in for an interview. And his wife had been to Bible college, and she was a gifted Bible teacher. And the church said, well, we're going to ask you to help teach our ladies' study. Well, at a public meeting of the church, the older women attacked this man's wife using Titus 2.3, arrogantly saying things like, you've got nothing to teach us, young woman. We've got some things to teach you. Needless to say, her husband did not take that church job. And heaven knows the older women in that church could have used some real instruction in theology in the Bible. No, Paul isn't saying that only older women may teach the Bible to younger women. What he is saying is there are some things that older women have life experience with related to the home, to being a wife, to being a mom. And about these subjects, older ladies, you have a profound insight into life that younger ladies usually lack. And not only do the younger ladies lack your experience, they likely lack confidence in many of these areas. They would greatly benefit from you befriending them and spending time with them and encouraging them. More than that, they may lack the confidence to even approach you to ask for help. Older ladies, go befriend young women here. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Encourage them with your wisdom and life experience. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, since we're on this subject of younger women, let's discuss Paul's instructions concerning them next. Back in 1 Timothy, we read in 1 Timothy 5.2, encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. Younger women are not only to be encouraged by the older women, they're also to be encouraged by church leaders too. And church leaders must treat the younger women in the church as they would treat their own sisters. Now, notice Paul puts this qualifier at the end of verse 2. Timothy's interactions with all younger ladies in the church must be marked with all purity. There's a very good reason for this instruction. There are few things as reprehensible as male ministry leaders seducing young women who are under their charge. That is an abomination, and it happens far too frequently. Church leaders, we must be warned. God will avenge this. But... While there is a very real danger of sexual impropriety between church leaders and young women, and while some safeguards are necessary, there have also been serious overreactions. In the name of wanting to avoid impropriety, male church leaders sometimes avoid having anything to do with the women who are in their flock. That's not what Paul's saying. One book I've read suggests that men should avert their eyes from attractive women in the church who say hello to them, to avoid temptation. That's a really awkward way to do ministry. Hello, oh, hello, right? This kind of stuff is folly. Married men, your sisters in Christ are not the enemy. Married women, your brothers in Christ are not the enemy. We are not Muslims. Separating men and women into two separate rooms when we pray or worship. If we belong to Christ, we've got the Holy Spirit. We are not slaves to sin. We should have some self-control. Yes, flee sexual temptation where it exists. But frankly, a conversation with a sister in church ought not be sexual temptation or even in a public place. Now, saying that, we don't want to be dumb. This is an area where things can go disastrously sideways very quickly. Safeguards are prudent. Friends, if you're friends with someone of the opposite sex, make every effort to be better friends with their spouse if they have one. 
Make sure your spouse is around when you hang out with them. Watch your emotions. Do not be drawn into emotional infidelity. Be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But I've got to tell you, 90% of the time, the safeguards that are often touted in churches to protect ministry leaders from sexual misconduct don't work. And I'll tell you why. Because if you really want to commit adultery, all of the rules and safeguards in the world aren't going to stop you. What will stop you is the love and fear of Christ, the love and fear of your wife, the love of your family, and the love of the church. So more than me standing up here and preaching the Billy Graham rule, what I want to say to all of us, and especially to my fellow ministry leaders, is we must war against temptation in our hearts. We must flee tempting situations. We must not get caught in scenarios that can cascade into immorality or which create an appearance of impropriety. So yes, encourage younger women. They are our sisters. They are not our enemies. They are not moral hazards. But when we interact with them, we must do so in all purity. But what do younger ladies require encouragement in? Well, let's go back to Titus 2, and again, we find a list. Verse 4, he says, Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Sometimes people teach on Ephesians 5, and they'll say, Husbands are commanded to love their wives, but wives are not commanded to love their husbands. That is false. Women who are wives absolutely need to love their husbands. Women who are mothers absolutely need to love their children. Now notice, Paul seems to presuppose that all young women are married here. And this verse is often used to tell young women in the church, God's intent for you is marriage. The truth is we've got to be careful about putting too much weight on one verse. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us singleness is a gift from God as much as marriage is. And Paul thinks singleness is preferable for believers. So this verse is not saying every young woman in the church should be urged to marry. It is saying those who have husbands and children should be urged to love them. But Paul has more to say about a woman's duties in the home in the next verse. He says, verse 5, she is to be working at home. Now again, this verse is often used to tell women they ought not work outside of the house. But in Proverbs 31, the Bible says, that the excellent wife considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She makes linen garments and sells them, and she delivers sashes to the merchant. So again, I counsel you against taking any one Bible verse and trying to totalize it into being the last word on any subject. Women may work outside of the household, but where women have a household, where she has a husband and, a ch and children, a woman needs to do her part in tending the home. But Paul has still more to say about this subject. Look at verse 5. He says, urge them to be submissive to their own husbands. Ephesians 5 is clear that husbands are to lead families as Christ leads the church. And in that chapter we read, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives are to voluntarily subject themselves to the leadership and direction given by their husbands. Not because God thinks that women are inferior to men, but because God is a God of order. And this is the order God has established for the family. Now, wives are to submit to their husbands as an expression of their loyalty to Christ. If a husband demands that a wife do something contrary to the Lord, she must not obey the husband. Because doing so would no longer be serving Christ first. But where obeying your husband will not cause you to disobey God, then ladies, obey your husbands. Now, why is there all of this instruction on the home here? 
Well, because most of the time, young ladies get married. And marriage and parenting are daunting tasks. And so young ladies with families really need encouragement to persist and excel in these important areas. But there are two more reasons that stand behind these instructions. First, back in chapter 1, you'll recall, Paul says there's a problem Titus is dealing with. There's a false teaching that is upsetting whole families. Families are being destroyed. And Paul wants to protect families from this heresy. And so he wants to guard these families by training young women. But second, Paul adds this final statement to verse 5. He says, do these things that the word of God may not be reviled. Last week we saw that God's name and word are often reviled when church leaders fall into sin. But I've got some bad news. It's not just leaders that the world watches, it's all of us. And Paul says here to young ladies, a failure to honor and serve your families can shame the gospel, especially if your husband is an unbeliever. Sin in that situation is doubly harmful. It harms you, and it testifies against Christ before your husband. And so Paul really wants young women to be encouraged towards godly living in their responsibilities at home. And he wants this encouragement to primarily, but not exclusively, come from older women. But Paul's instruction for young ladies is not only related to their duties at home. He also wants to work on their character too. And so Paul says in verse 5, they should be encouraged to be self-controlled. Self-control isn't only for men. Women also need to learn not to be dominated by physical desires or emotional impulses. Moreover, Paul wants young ladies to be pure, to keep their minds on the things above and live lives of propriety. And they're to be kind. Actually, the Greek word here means good. They're to reflect God's goodness in all that they do, including how you deal with people. So, young ladies, know that you matter. You matter to God. You matter to the church. Because how you conduct yourself, that also matters. Because if you're a believer, what you do reflects on Christ. So I urge you, younger ladies, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. War for self-control and purity and goodness in your life. Christ has triumphed at the cross so you can walk in obedience to him in these areas. If you are married, love your husbands well. Raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Tend to your homes as best as you can. And if you say, how can I manage all of this? Especially for those of you who work outside the home. I would say, trust yourself to the mercy of Christ and seek the counsel of older women who have walked this road before and learn from them. Now we come to the fourth group Paul addresses. Again in 1 Timothy 5, he says, encourage younger men as brothers. And how are we to do this? Well, it's almost stunning if we look at Titus 2. Because Paul has given us long lists of characteristics about older men and older women and younger women. But this is all Paul says about younger men in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If you're in one of the other groups, at this point you might get a bit irked. Why do young men have it so easy? Only self-control but if you know many young men, or if you've been a young man, I would tell you, you know self-control is pretty difficult by itself in almost every area. Beyond this, I would say two things. First, Paul's instructions to Titus immediately follow this verse. So the idea isn't just that younger men are to be self-controlled. They're to follow the godly example set by Titus in good works and in self and sound doctrine. But second, 
Every command that Paul gives to believers applies to young men as well, including the very rigorous commands required of men in the home. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's about as difficult as it gets in the Bible. Love someone to the standard of Christ's sacrificial death. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are many things young men must do, especially if they have families. But at the heart of the young man's struggle, Paul knows, is the battle for self-control. And that's what he urges here. As he says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, walk by faith and obedience, knowing that Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. And you will grow in sanctification. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Guard your hearts and minds by immersing them in the scriptures. Young men battle for self-control. So now Paul has spoken to everyone in the church, man or woman, young or old. But he's not done because he's got one last group. A very large group, which is not defined by age or sex, but social status. Which would be comprised of both men and women young and old. Here he's going to talk to slaves. Now, slavery is a tough subject for Americans because slavery is an evil part of our own history and its specter continues to haunt our nation in many ways. But this is Paul's next topic, so we must address it. Somewhere between a tenth and a third of the ancient world were slaves at any given time, and a similar percentage would have been freedmen, people who had previously been slaves. Many people in the early church, likewise, were slaves and freedmen. And slavery in the ancient world was a terrible place to be. In many ways, it was similar to the slavery practiced in this country before the Civil War. Slaves in Paul's day had no individual rights. They were seen as property. They could be beaten or killed for no reason. Slavery was an evil institution, even in Greco-Roman times. But there were some important differences between slavery in American history and slavery in the Greco-Roman world. For starters, slavery in antiquity was not a caste system based on race. Rather, slaves were usually prisoners of war or people who sold themselves to pay off their debts. Moreover, slaves in Paul's world were often given great liberty to learn or travel or exercise authority over their master's affairs. Additionally, slavery was often a less permanent condition in the ancient world, there was a widespread custom of releasing your slaves when they turned 30. And so, while slavery was a terrible institution, it's not exactly the same thing, ancient slavery, as slavery in American history. But when we learn about American sla or ancient slavery and how many Christians in the ancient world were slaves, we might expect that the New Testament would take an aggressive posture towards social activism. We might expect that God would say, free your slaves, don't buy more slaves, fight to end slavery. But we find a different attitude in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7 says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now, Paul says slavery is not something to worry about. From a worldly perspective, this is nonsensical because slavery is the worst position to be in. It's very worrisome. But Paul's point is this. Your social situation does not commend you to God. You don't have to have a high social status to have a relationship with God. You don't even have to be free. Because social status is all about boasting. And God isn't interested in giving us a ground for boasting. So if you're in a low social status, don't worry about it. That's the New Testament's approach to this question. Now, of course, Paul knows it's better to be free than to be a slave. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can better your situation, do it. But don't let your social status be the main thing you're concerned about in life. Because at the end of the day, the slavery we need to be worried about is not social slavery. It is slavery to sin, which we are released from by the power of the gospel. That's the New Testament's general attitude about slavery. But Paul now has some particular instructions for those who were slaves. Let's look at Titus 2 verse 9. He says, bond servants, literally slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here again, God says to people in the church, honor God by submitting to some other people. Slaves submit to masters. And he says, you're not to do this begrudgingly or to look for a way to avenge yourself by stealing or by talking back to your masters. Rather, Paul says, be faithful in your duties and serve well. Why? Why does God require this of slaves? Because their submission, even to the evil system of slavery, reflects well on Christ. Because this kind of careful, faithful service would distinguish Christian slaves from others. It would point their masters to the loving, good, transformed life that comes from loving Christ. And Christian slaves who adopted this approach would testify to their masters that this world is not all there is. Their hope is elsewhere. It's an eternal life. So they're to serve well. We find similar instructions in 1 Timothy 6. Verse 1, Paul says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Again, Paul commands slaves to treat their masters well. And in 1 Timothy, Paul's particularly concerned about Christian slaves who have believing masters. Paul knows these slaves may be tempted to use their common faith to their personal advantage, to say to their masters, hey, we're brothers, lessen my duties. But Paul says that's not how this is to work. Now, Christians who owned slaves were to treat their slaves well. We saw a few weeks ago God despises those who abuse the vulnerable. And if a Christian had a slave who was a fellow believer, he was to treat that slave as a brother in the Lord, according to Philemon 16. But Paul says now to the slaves, don't exploit your faith to better your situation. Instead, remember the principle of Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Believers are to love one another and not seek their own advantage. And so if a Christian slave had a Christian master, this was not an excuse for lousy service to think, oh, I'm going to get away with it. No, Paul says, if you're enslaved by a fellow Christian, work all the harder as an expression of love. Show integrity and don't disrespect your master. Instead, serve him well. Now, to us today, these commands seem totally outlandish and foreign because, thankfully, today, slavery is illegal. So this is one of those areas in the Bible where we do not have a one-to-one -one application of the biblical text for us today. These commands were given in a time and a place where slavery was a legal institution. In our world, it's not. So today, if we encounter people who are enslaved, we should not say to them, hey, serve your master well. We should obey Titus 3, submit to the government, pick up the phone, call the police, and help them get free, right? But I do think there is some application for us here. While we love our freedom in this country, we need to remember that sometimes God calls believers to submit to other people. 
We are to submit to the government. We are to submit to church leaders who rule biblically. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Employees are to submit to their employers. And if we imagine that our personal freedoms make void God's command for us to submit in these various ways, we are mistaken. If God commanded slaves to submit well to their masters, how much more should we who are in a better position than ancient slaves be expected to bear up under the submissive relationships we're in? How much more does God expect us to render excellent service to those who are over us in those sorts of relationships? And that's all the more true if the person we owe responsibility to is a believer. We're to serve them well as an act of love. That is what God wants from us. And we must again remember, others are watching. And once more, Paul warns us, if we fail in this area, it reflects poorly on Christ and becomes ammo for the enemies of the gospel. So to honor Christ, let us acquit our responsibilities before the government and our bosses and anyone else that we owe submission to. I know this is a long passage. I want to conclude with this today. If you're not a believer, you're a slave to sin, you're not a part of God's people, you are under God's wrath, repent and believe the gospel and be saved. If you are a believer, hopefully today we've seen something that God wants to address in your life and, and in mine, maybe in our character, maybe how we serve others, maybe how we serve the church, maybe in our attitudes. Friends, may we grow in the, in the way that God tells us he wants us to grow here, that we can walk by, spirit, by the Spirit in faith and we will see sanctification, we will see growth. Church leaders, we need to learn from these words how to engage various members of our community and how to encourage them. And finally, I hope that if we belong to Christ, we see that we all have a place here. We all belong and we all matter. 1 Corinthians 12 says, The body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. There are many parts, yet one body. If you're old or young, if you're man or woman, you have a place here. We are joined to one another, not because of our identity politics. We have a confession that is in common. We have a testimony that is in common. We have a hope that is in common. We have a foundation that is common in, in the deity, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is what this church is to be. That is to be the foundation of our community. So let us live to honor him.